0: What sort of person are you? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you live the way that you live? Well, the way that you live depends on what you think about life and the purpose of life, it depends on what you know about your current situation and your future. If you're on a cruise ship and you're enjoying a, a, the blessing of a nice, relaxing holiday, That's what you do. Your days are spent in relaxing and resting and enjoying food and fellowship. But if you're on this ship called the Titanic and the decks look like this, they're inclined because it's sinking, then because your situation is different and the future is certainly different than you expected, you act differently. You're a different sort of person. You're not going to go to the dining room and relax and have a nice meal. You're going to be focused on getting your loved ones and helping others to the lifeboats and getting life preservers and maybe getting some food, some, that you can, you can, some packages of food that you can put in the boat while you wait for the new ship to come to save you. And so the situation you're in and the situation which lies ahead of you totally changes the way you act. Now, Peter, in this chapter 3 of his second epistle, he tells us that in this world, there are many who are sitting in the dining room as the ship is sinking. They deny the tilt. I guess they just figure, well, maybe I've drunk a little too much. That's why it seems the ship is listing that way. They deny the imminent sinking. Everything's fine. Let's just keep on doing what we're doing. All these prophecies over centuries and centuries that judgment is coming, that the end is near. It's all foolishness. It's never happened, and it never will happen. And Peter says, that's a very foolish way to live. You need to look at God's record. As you look here, if you have your Bible open to chapter 3, you'll see I'm walking quickly through the first part of the the chapter here before we come to the text. Look at God's record. He, He brought the earth out of water, and when it was filled with every kind of sin and wickedness, he plunged it right back into water in the great flood. The flood so great, so worldwide and cosmic, that the Bible uses a special word for the flood of Noah, which is not used for any other type of flood in the Scriptures. He spoke, and it came to be. The earth stood forth out of the waters. He spoke again, and the earth was deluged and covered with water, and it covered even the tops of the highest mountains. And Peter says, that's a fact. These are facts. And by that same word which ordained creation and destruction in the flood, look at verse seven, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's a fact. When God says something, it it happens. His word does not return empty. He will accomplish what he has decreed. And so the question is, Why hasn't it happened yet? And the answer is because God is good. Because God is patient and kind. Look at verse nine there in your Bible, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has not yet brought about the final day and the final judgment because he is giving time to sinners to repent. And maybe this morning you're here and your heart is not new. You have not yet bowed your knee and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And maybe God is waiting for you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn away from your sins, to repent and to find your life in him. Because it's coming. It is imminent. It is the next thing. It is the last great redemptive act of God in Christ. As we confess in the creed every Sunday, from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the only phrase in that whole part of the creed which talks about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person of our Lord Jesus, the only phrase which he has not yet accomplished. We're just waiting for that. And for us, it might seem like a long time. It's been roughly 2,000 years since the Lord ascended. That's a very long time. And and Peter reminds us that God is outside of time. He's not saying that when a day passes that the Lord says, well, that felt long. It felt like a 1,000 years. He's not saying that when a 1,000 years passes, the Lord says, well, that was really quick. It just seemed like a day to me. What the apostle is saying is that it's all the same. A day a thousand years, a million years. It's all the same because God stands outside of time, and all of time from the beginning of creation to trillions and trillions and trillions of years in the future and glory, it all stands before him. He sees it in one eternal moment. We're in time. He's not He doesn't feel like this is taking long at all. He sees the whole picture. He sees the whole story. He knows the end from the beginning. And to us who think it's taking a really long time, the apostle reminds us of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24. He will come unexpectedly like a thief. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be many who will be unaware. There will be many who will be unprepared. There will be many who will simply not expect it. And those many are not just the people out there, but there are many in the church who will not be ready. That great day, verse 10, when the sky will pass away With a roar, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved as the sun breaks into pieces and flames out to exist no more. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That day when everything is uncovered, and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account every idle word, every thought and inclination of the heart. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Look back at verse 7. What's going to happen at this great day? It is the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In Hebrews chapter 12, the apostle puts it this way as he he quotes this, once more I will shake the heavens and the earth. And what that means is that on that great and final day, God will take this creation and rattle it around and shake it and shake it and everything that is not connected to Jesus and everyone who is not in Christ will fall out and will fall away and be shaken out the way you beat out a rug, the dirt doesn't belong. And if everything's going to fall apart, if everything's going to be dissolved and burned up, if everything's going to fall apart, how can we keep it together? Well, look at Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, says the apostle, Hebrews 13.1. What sort of people, sorry, Hebrews 12.29, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What are we supposed to do then? God says there's judgment coming, everything's going to be burned up, and all the evil and wickedness is going to be shaken out of the universe. What are we supposed to do about that? Does God want us to huddle on the rooftops? Kind of commenting to each other with glum faces as we see the world going to hell in a handbasket and say, wow, things are getting bad. Judgment day is coming. We just sit around with long faces. Well, no. What does the apostle, what does the the Lord teach us? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? God wants us to live. Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance. He didn't come so we can sit around moaning and groaning and being miserable. He wants us to live. And so it's a call to action. Imminent judgment, impending judgment, the coming of the final day is a call to action for God's people. The Bible says strive for holiness. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That means that we need to actively be hating sin, hating what brings brokenness, why should we hold on to, why should we reach out for, why should we grasp the things that are going to be burned up, the things that are going to be shaken out, the things that have to do with the falling apart, the things that are going to burn up. Why should I run after those things? Why should I fill my eyes with those things? Why should I scroll on the internet to look at those things? Why should I come on that great day and stand before my Savior with my eyes full of lust and pornography, with my hands full of blood, my mouth full of lies, and my heart full of covetousness? This is a call, brothers and sisters, right now, to begin living the life that is ours forever, the life of righteousness, the life of holiness, the life of which the apostle speaks in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 17, For he says this, quoting the prophet Isaiah, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, the apostle there in 2 Corinthians is quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah was telling the people of God in exile, you're going to be brought home. You're going to be saved from living amongst the godless nations, the idolaters. You're going to be restored into the the home where you belong, the house of God. And so don't get connected with the foulness and the filth of the idolatrous culture around you. Be separate. Begin to live even now. The holiness, which is yours in God himself. And in anticipation, wait for your redemption. That Those words spoken hundreds and hundreds of years ago to God's people in exile are spoken to us in our exile, as we as sojourners and exiles wait for the redemption of our bodies and of the creation. So this is a call to action. Be holy, says God, as I am holy, holiness is being set apart. It is being cleansed from the filth of sin, and and godliness is positively reflecting the character of God, living according to his will by the power of his spirit being transformed from glory to glory after the image of his son. So what we have here, holiness and godliness are reflecting somewhat the process that the Holy Spirit works in us when we've been given a new heart. You think of Lord's Day 33, that more and more the, the old nature dies, that we hate sin more and more, that's holiness. We're, t- we're turned away from it, we reject it, and godliness is the coming to life of the new nature as we reflect the very character of Jesus himself. If you just look maybe on the page before this chapter in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, you see where we get this godliness from. It is from his divine power. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. If we would be holy, we must know Christ. If we would be godly, we must know Christ. And knowing Christ... Knowing him truly is to know life. It is to be changed to be like him by the power of his spirit. To the point, look at verse 4, that we become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean to say we become God because that's impossible. But the Trinity comes and lives in us. That's partaking of the divine nature. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwells in us as a temple. So that we can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what does that produce, brothers and sisters? If the triune God lives within me, what is that going to do to me? What am I going to look like? Well, look at verse 5. I'm going to have a life of faith and virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection, love. These things all come together with godliness. And so the apostle in verse 10 of chapter one, he says, listen, you need to confirm your calling an election. Is this the way you are? Because this is the way you ought to be. This is the way that it is promised that you are in Christ. Is this what you're experiencing? Do you see it happening? Do you see a burning hatred for sin in your life? That you're literally would rather rip out your right eye rather than look upon that which is evil? you see that? A hatred for sin. Do you see a burning love for Christ that you would rather lose everything, including your life, rather than do the least thing against his will? You see, when we're in Christ, when we know Christ, when the divine nature comes and makes his home in us, we are being changed to be more like him. And look at verse 11. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no entrance to the kingdom with hands full of grubby, filthy sins that we love. The little favorite sins that we stick back in our pocket because we don't want them washed away. We want to hold to them. No room for that. There's only room in the kingdom for those who are in Christ, for those who are being transformed by Christ, those who are holy and godly through him. It needs to be real, brothers and sisters. We we can't fake it. We can't put it on as a mask. We can't put it on as a costume. We can't just play act religion, true religion and, and true faith. Timothy warns us of this, or Paul warns us of this as he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, says the apostle. You know, you read that list, you listen to that list. That's terrifying. Because I see all of those things in myself. Many of them. And you know, there are different ways to deal with this because it's describing the fallen human being outside of Christ. That's what we are by nature in our fallenness. It's describing that. And some embrace it. They say, this is who I am and this is how I will live and I don't care. And others paint, whitewash over the top of it. They become whitewashed tombs. And they embrace legalism and the appearance of godliness. They look like very good people, very righteous people. And they're very careful to maintain that appearance. But inside, nothing has changed. You know, that will get you through this life pretty well. People will think you're a great Christian. You're a great elder, a great deacon, a great member of the church, a great pastor, a very godly person. It'll get you through this life. You'll fool a lot of the people a lot of the time if you have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. But it won't get you through the last day, brothers and sisters. It won't get me through the last day. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, And Jesus will say, who are you? I don't know you. I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. It is my duty as a preacher of the gospel. It is my duty to call you, brothers and sisters, to call your attention to the danger of faking it of being happy with an external appearance of holiness and godliness and be satisfied with that. And if you are here this morning and you're just going through the motions and you're doing a really good job of it, and you're even maybe deceiving yourself and your heart has not changed, then I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus ask him for a new heart, one which hates sin and which loves Christ. That's the only way, brothers and sisters, that there can be an entrance for us into the eternal kingdom. Unless a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. You know what? Maybe it's a little bit Scary to think about that because we all look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law and we say, well, I, how do I know I'm not one of those hypocrites? Because there's a lot of stuff in my life that needs changing, brothers and sisters. It's not about us being perfect. It's about us wanting Christ, needing Christ, knowing Christ. And no matter where you go, 24 hours a day you have Good news stamped on your forehead in your baptism. Your baptism preaches to you. Also, when you're feeling rotten because you're you're feeling sinful, your baptism is preaching to you. And it is telling you, it is reminding you of the gospel. It is saying, it is reminding you of the promises of God in Christ that you are washed, that you are clean, that you are set apart, that you are holy, not because of what you've done, but because Christ is your sanctification. Christ is your holiness. And your baptism keeps preaching to you. And your baptism preaches not only that you are holy and set apart and clean and washed in Christ, but your baptism promises also and preaches to you the promises of the gospel that the Spirit is a renewing Spirit who gives you new life and godliness and growth in godliness, and makes you heartily willing and ready from henceforth to live for him, not in your own power, but in the power of Christ, who is your righteousness. So that being holy in him, and being righteous in him, we become more and more, by the power of the Spirit, what we are. And that's why Paul says that to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If you, if you look ahead to judgment day and you look at yourself and you say, well, what do I have, what do I have to bring to the table? What can, I, what can I say when I stand before God in my own merits? You have nothing. I have nothing. And it will be terrifying But when we look at judgment day coming and we look at it in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we say, bring it on, bring it, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranath, I can't wait because I know I am holy. I know I am godly because the spirit is doing that work in me. So what does this look like in real life? What does this look like? living lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for the dissolution, the falling apart of this all broken world and the coming of the new. What does it look like? Well, first of all, it's, it's different for everyone. This is important. Look at the text there. It's hard to see in the English, but those words are plurals. Lives of holiness. It's not a life of holiness. It's lives. And godliness, if we had translated it literally... We would say godlinesses. It's a plural word. What is the Lord telling us here? He's reminding us of who he is and what he does. There is unity in diversity. That is the Trinity. One God, three persons, unity and diversity. And that reflects in families and in congregations and in the church Catholic. Unity in diversity, a life of holiness and godliness is not everybody marching in lockstep, having the same opinions, wearing the same clothes, doing the same things, and having the same uh, actions and priorities and, and decisions in their lives. That's not how it works. That is to be a sect, that is to be a cult, that is legalism, which loves rules and uniformity and marching in lockstep. And the problem with legalism, amongst many others, is that all the focus is on me. I'm not saying to people, hey, let's encourage one another to be like Jesus. But what I'm saying when I'm a legalist is you need to be like me. I'm a good person. I have the right opinions. I do the right things. Why aren't you doing what I do? Why aren't you thinking what I think? That's not the gospel. There's no life in that. So the first thing, brothers and sisters, as we look at our text, is that God teaches us that there was a great and beautiful diversity in the holiness and godliness of God's people. Of course, unified in the principles of the scriptures, which teach us that it's rooted in Christ himself, his person and his character. The second thing that I would like to call your attention to is that we need to be sober-minded. We need to discern the time. We know this broken, groaning world is slated for judgment and destruction. And because we know that, we know that all things will be dissolved. That changes the way we live. We do not seek the things that are on this earth. We seek the things that are above. And it changes everything, doesn't it? We understand in the power of the Spirit That godliness with contentment is great gain. We understand that we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. We are content with food and clothing. We don't desire to be rich. We understand that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. We don't use people to love things more, but we use things to love people more. We pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We fight the good fight of faith. We take hold of the eternal life to which we were called. What the apostle is calling us to do in this text, as the scriptures call us to do in many others, is to lift up our eyes. You know, it's real easy to just, you keep your head down, and you get up, and you go to work, and you do your daily stuff, and then you come home, and you pay your bills, and you do your duties, and and, and you just get this little hamster wheel, you're running in it, and, and, and your head's down, and that's all you see, all the things. And then you're just longing for a break, for thank God it's Friday, and for some kind of rest from all this continual rhythm of work. And we can forget, brothers and sisters, to see the big picture. Where is this all leading? What's it all for? What's it all for? Well, what is it all for? We fight the good fight of faith. We take hold of the eternal life to which we were called. This world is passing away. These bodies are just temporary. There are new ones coming. And that ought to change the way we think. We take hold of eternal life. The more things fall apart around us in the world of sin, stored up for judgment, the more we take hold of eternal life and we rejoice. Things are falling apart in a broken world, but in Christ alone, we have it. Altogether, And that's why, because we already now are holding on to the sure and certain promise of eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, we're waiting for them eagerly. You see that in verse 12? Waiting for and hastening the coming, that means we're eagerly expecting it. We can't wait. And because of that, because that's what we're holding on to, those lives of holiness and godliness are Heavenly. They're filled with heavenly joy. They're big and expansive and full of happiness and love and life. They're not cramped and cringy and stingy and bitter and envious. You know, that's what people think. You ask a lot of people that don't know the Lord Jesus or know the gospel, but even a lot of people in the church, they think of holiness and godliness. It's like, well, you can't have any fun. You've got to do nothing, just sit there and... Read your Bible and try not to, to laugh too much. You know, somebody once said uh, that some people think of godliness and holiness in this way that it is the fear that someone somewhere might be having fun. And that's how some Christians see godliness and holiness, but that's not what it is at all. It, it, to live in lives of godliness and holiness is to live lives of joy. God comes in the morning. He supplies us and satisfies us with his unfailing love. His mercies are new every morning. Every day we wake up and it doesn't matter what's happening. And how much life is hurting right now, we say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's why Paul is worshiping and praising God in prison and speaking about joy and rejoicing every other sentence as he writes to the Philippians. Because we have grasped and held on to eternal life. And so we work. We work hard. We study. We build careers and houses and families, relationships and companies and organizations. We maintain things. We repair things. We teach. We plan. We sow. We harvest. We buy. We sell. We eat. We drink. We work out. We play games. We play sports. We create art and music and do all kinds of other things. And as we live, even in this broken world, as we live, we live in holiness and godliness in anticipation of eternal, perfect joy. We begin it now already. And so, the way we live, brothers and sisters, there's zero buy in to the passing temporal things of this broken, sinful world. These lives that we live are not driven by lust for riches or pleasure or fame or recognition. We are not of this world. We are not of this world. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so all that we do, we do in him, and for him, and through him. We do everything as sons and daughters of the King of kings. We do it for his glory. We do it for love. Love for him and love for others. Love for each other. Living the beginning of eternal joy. Tasting the beginning of eternal joy, eternal life, and eternal love. That is a life of holiness and godliness. This is the sort of people that we ought to be. And this is the sort of people that we are by the blessing of our gracious God and Savior as he establishes all the labor of our hands. Amen.